Uh, we are in Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. You know, it was interesting today as I was uh, in the hallway, I noticed the ladies, they went on a retreat yesterday, just a one-day retreat, not too far actually from here, just to get away and kind of consider the Lord and the things of the Lord, and, and it was good. We've heard great reports already from it, but uh, Susan Ruckman says it was great, uh, as you can imagine. Um, but anyhow, you, you see people sort of that went on this little retreat, and they're sort of mingling with one another and loving one another, and like it was so great, and the way it builds camaraderie. Well, at the same time that the ladies were there, the youth, boys, were out shooting one another with paintball guns. And what's fascinating, though, is the ladies go away and they meet with the Lord and they spend time with each other and they love each other and God does a great work and, and unites their hearts. The men go and shoot one another and you see them in the hall and God has united their hearts. You know what I mean? And they're like, oh man, it was awesome. I love you. You know, so anyway, good things uh, and... And it was just fun to see what the Lord was doing in, in both of those cases. Um, as I said, we are in Matthew chapter 4. Now, we didn't finish up chapter 4, so we have to pick up at the last couple of verses. So in your Bibles, you can look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And I'll begin by asking this question. Are you happy? Anybody? No, you don't have to answer. But are you happy is the question that I want to ask of you today. And what I mean by that is this. And different people have, I'm sure lots of us are thinking about different things right now as to, well, am I happy? Let me think. And, you know, I look out and most people would say, well, is there a smile on that person's face or can you tell they're kind of down or something like that? And that is sort of the indicator of whether or not they're happy by that. But I want to define happiness in a different way according to what the Scripture doesn't come out and say this is what happy means, but according to what the Scripture paints is the happy life, is how I want to define it. And so I begin by asking that question, and I'm going to ask the question again as we come to the conclusion of this message. But is your life marked by the general disposition of peace and contentedness? Is your life marked by the general disposition of peace and con contentedness? Would you say that you are generally satisfied with who you are, what God has for you, what God is doing in your life. Not that you're not you know, looking, striving to improve and become something better and getting an education and all those kinds of things, but are you generally satisfied with where ha God has you and what God is doing in your life? And for some, and I would suggest for many, the answer to that question, are you happy, is based on their current circumstances. And so if I were to ask an Eagles fan today, hey, how about you, are you happy? their response <laughs> is probably going to be something like, why don't you just go away? Uh, because the Eagles haven't started too well. For others, happiness is dependent on how their 401k is doing. Mine's not doing very well. I'm not too happy. For, us, for many of us, it's whether, how their kids are doing in school or, or what's the general circumstances of life at home. Those are the things we look at. And for many, and I would, again, I would say most, happiness is directly tied to the circumstances that are surrounding them. So if things are going well, if things are satisfactory, and if they are having no significant difficulties in life, then they are happy. And if the converse is occurring, then they are not. But the plan of God for our lives is not for our general disposition to be fluctuating up and down based on the circumstances that are taking place. 
but rather God's desire is for each of us that we might enjoy peace and contentedness and satisfaction and joy day in and day out regardless of the circumstances. And so today what I want to do is I want to begin a look at this idea in a message again that I have entitled The Pursuit of Happiness. So as I said, take a look in your Bibles with me to chapter 4, verse 23. Now we saw in our last study that it was about a period of a year that Jesus had come on the scene through that baptism we looked at and then being driven off into the wilderness where he was tempted. And then about a year of time had gone on. And during or toward the end of that year in time, Jesus reached out to a group of people and called them to go a little bit deeper. Lots of people had been milling about around Jesus, kind of hearing what he had to say, listening to what he had to say. But Jesus began, as we saw last week, to call folks to go a little bit deeper. And essentially he said to them, look, I can tell that you're intrigued by what I have to say, but I'm calling you to be more than intrigued. He said, you've listened, you've considered, you might want to turn off your cell phones by the way, the rest of you that are here, you've listened and you've considered, but I'm calling you to respond and obey. Did you hear that? You didn't hear that. You weren't paying attention. You've listened and you've considered, he said, but I'm calling you to respond and to obey. And as we concluded our study last week, we saw that four of those men that did that were Andrew, Peter, James, and John. There were perhaps some others, but they're the ones that are listed to us here in our passage. These became, if you will, the first disciples of Jesus. Men that were going to leave everything and radically follow after Jesus, with Him being the teacher and they being the learners. And so with those four in tow, let's pick up where we left off. Look at verse 23. It says, Now Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so His fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought Him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics. And He healed them. And great crowds followed Him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea, and from even beyond the Jordan. Now you recall, we mentioned, that Galilee is the region in northern Israel. It's northwest of the Sea of Galilee itself. That's the Galilee region. It's just south of, even today, the nation of Syria, both of which are mentioned in this passage. Look at verse 25. Decapolis is mentioned. Decapolis was comprised of Ten cities, that's where the word Deca, the idea of Deca there, it's comprised of ten Gentile cities that are on the eastern and southern coast of the Sea of Galilee. So the area of Galilee is on the western and northern side of the sea. Decapolis is on the eastern and southern side of the sea. And Decapolis was Gentile land. And so people from this Gentile land are also hearing about and seeing what Jesus is doing. And they too are being attracted. Look what it says in verse 23. Throughout these areas that Jesus is making His way, it's His teaching. Then a little bit later, proclaiming the Gospel that's preaching. A little further on, it says healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And look at the result of this. And it says, and not surprisingly, great crowds began to follow Him. And you notice that they began to follow Him not only from that region that was right there, but they've been, word began to spread all the way down to Jerusalem, almost 100 miles away. Word began to spread. And Judea. And then if you notice there, and it says, and from beyond the Jordan. That's 
the neighboring nations. Today it would be the nation of Jordan. Here it's talking about beyond the Jordan River. So people began to come from all over the place. Anyone that was within a uh, hundred miles or so, word began to filter to them and they began to make their way and they began to follow the Lord. They began to follow Him in the sense of walking after Him so they could hear what He had to say. But notice what Jesus does. Look at verse 1. It says, and we pointed this out last week, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. Now conventional wisdom would say, hey, great crowds are coming. Keep doing what you're doing so even more crowds will keep coming. But Jesus, on the other hand, He he changes everything and He withdraws from the crowds and He goes up on the hill, up on the mountain. It's not really a mountain. It's really just a hill. But neither was the Sea of Galilee a sea. It was a lake. But they called it a sea. They called it a mountain. And He goes up on this hill. And I think it bears repeating what I mentioned last week. That the one that is intrigued, they mill about at the bottom of the hill. If Jesus is in the area, well then they'll, they'll perk up their ear a little bit. They'll listen to what He might have to say. But it's the disciple that goes up on the mountain so that they can be taught. That the casual observer, they're going to catch Jesus the next time He's in the area. But the follower laces up his sandals and takes the trek up the hill so that they can continue to glean all that He has for them. And so Jesus goes up on a mountain. Now, in Jesus' day, when a rabbi, when a teacher would want to preach to the crowd, he would find a place, he would go down into the the center of those folks there, and he would stand and he would preach. But when a rabbi wanted to teach the crowd, he would go somewhere and he would sit down. And that would be an indication to the people that the rabbi's about to teach us. And they would now begin to kind of settle in a little bit, like, all right, I'm ready. They'd get their notebook out and they'd be prepared for what he has. And so when Jesus sits down, they know now that he's going to teach us. And so it says in verse 2 that he opens his mouth and he teaches them. Now that's a Greek phrase which means that he cries out loudly and in a way that is clearly articulate. He is presenting to them so that everyone can clearly hear what he has to say and they can take his message. They can learn from him. And he begins now in verse 3. Now verse 3, Jesus is going to start what many of us are familiar with. This is what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It is probably the most famous sermon that anybody anywhere has ever given. And we have it recorded for us in written form. It would be neat if it was in audio form. But we have it recorded for us in written form. And it begins with what is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. Now, This is probably not the only time Jesus preached this message. If you look in the book of Luke, Luke kind of shares a similar message. It's not called the Sermon on the Mount. We would call that the Sermon on the Plain because it says He went to a flat place and He preached. And it's pretty much the exact same message that He gives here. Slight variation, but nothing contradictory. But it's almost the exact same message. So Jesus probably preached this message over and over again when He went into new areas and He was talking to new people. And so, it's given to us here, and it begins, as I said, with the Beatitudes. Now, I want to point out a couple things before we jump into the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, it's important to point out that the Sermon on the Mount is, if you will, Jesus' manifesto. Now, manifesto oftentimes is associated with like communism or something, but they can't hijack the word. Manifesto is just simply, hey, this is what I believe, this is what it means to follow this particular 
form of thinking here. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto of what it would look like to be a member of the kingdom of heaven. So all of you folks are following me. John told you, I told you, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to join this kingdom, this is what it's going to mean to be a citizen of that kingdom. Okay, you catch that? So it's a manifesto of the kingdom of heaven. And as the king, he's got to have a constitution of sorts by which the members of that kingdom are going to have to live by. And the Sermon on the Mount is that manifesto. So that's number one. Secondly, notice the Sermon on the Mount is presented to disciples. It isn't presented to the entire world to look at and to emulate. It's presented to disciples. And that is actually significant. Anyone can listen to it. Anyone can glean from it. Anybody that wants to give it a shot and try, out, try to live out these principles is welcome to. But this is something specifically that is given to disciples. In fact, if you look at the message that Jesus shares, it really is the exact opposite of what the world shares, isn't it? Because the world says, stand up for yourself. Look out for number one. But Jesus here will tell us to walk in humility. The world will say, you need to be strong. You need to be cutthroat if you're ever going to get ahead. Jesus says that the meek will inherit the earth. The world promotes self-esteem and the glorification of self. Jesus speaks of having a brokenness of spirit and a desperation for God. It's really the exact opposite. I like what A.W. Tozer has said. He describes sort of the dichotomy between the world's ways and Jesus' ways. And he said this. He said, a fairly accurate description of the human race might be furnished one that is unacquainted with the human race by taking the Beatitudes, turning them wrong side out, and saying there is the human race. You see what Tozer is trying to point out? That the ways of the world are the exact opposite of the ways that Jesus is presenting here to us in this passage. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on a Mount as a whole are indeed the exact opposite of what the world promotes as a way that we are to live our life. And it's no doubt the cause of the opposition and the persecution. Look down just for a moment. We're not going to look at it today, but at verses 11 and 12. Jesus gives this whole litany of things and then He comes up to the point, He says, blessed are those that are persecuted. And it's no doubt that the fact that He is calling us to live a life completely contrary to the world around us, which is going to bring about that persecution. So, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto of the Kingdom of Heaven. Secondly, it is given uh, to Jesus' disciples. And thirdly, and I believe this is important to note, this section of Scripture does not deal with salvation. Because a lot of people will look at the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of people will look at the Beatitudes and think, hey, if I'm poor in spirit, if I'm humble, if I'm meek, if I hunger and thirst after righteousness, then that'll get me into heaven. And I'll be saved as a result of keeping those particular things. That's not Jesus' point here. The Scripture is very clear that there is one way into the Kingdom of God and it has nothing to do with the way you're living your life. It has to do with the work of Jesus Christ on a cross and your faith placed in His work on the cross. These teachings that we're going to dive into, and we will dive into them, trust me, these teachings, these are, if you will, the next step in your walk. But your walk begins at the foot of the cross. That's where salvation is. The Sermon on the Mount. For the disciple. And the idea is that how regarding Jesus as King is going to translate 
into your daily living and the ethics for, of which you hold. That's the message on the Sermon of the Mount, and on the, on the Mount, and that's why it's applicable to every one of us, whether we're new in the faith or we've been in the faith for quite some time. I find that it is very applicable, and we'll talk about that as we go. Well, I think that's sufficient. That's an intro. Let's look at. Let's read through verses three through nine. Actually, it says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek." for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now that, that section, and it goes on actually to verse 12, each of the verses essentially beginning with the word blessed, that section is referred to as the Beatitudes. Now the word Beatitude, it comes from a Latin word. It's, a, it's the English transliteration of the Latin word. The word is Beatus, and the idea there is that's how they get the word blessed. So Beatus, Beatitude, and so on. And when we think of blessed, if watching the news, trying to turn on your favorite football game, college football game, you're watching the Pope coming into town. I've never more resented the Pope until this week. I have to be honest with you. Seems like a nice enough fellow, but get off my TV. I want to watch some football. Well, anyway, again and again, people refer to the guy as the Blessed Father or the Holy Father. And a lot of times, we think of blessed and we think of things like holy. We think of things like glowing or something. You know, that, Boy, that's blessed there. You can see the glow. Or without stain. But the reality is this, that this word that is used here can simply be translated as happy. Or you could translate it as really to get the idea of what's trying to be conveyed is, oh, how happy. And I think when you think of it that way, it, it really changes the way you read this. And so let me put those words in there instead. Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, how happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, how happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It really does change the way you sort of approach this passage of Scripture. And so I began today by asking, are you happy? And I pointed out what I think is pretty clear to all of us, that for most, happiness is tied directly to the circumstances that they are experiencing. But in the kingdom of Christ, happiness does not have to be tied to our circumstances. Rather, happiness becomes a part of who we are because it's tied into the fabric of our being. William Barclay, a Bible commentator, he said this about the believer's happiness. He said, it is that joy which has its secret within itself. It is that joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained. It is that joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. And that's what Jesus is going to dig into here with His disciples. And it's what we're going to unpack as we now jump in. So let's jump in and look at the secret of the happy life or the blessed life according to Jesus. First thing I want you to notice here that you see in each one of the verses, it says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. It doesn't say blessed will be the poor. Blessed will be those that mourn. But blesses are, blessed are. So it's written in the present tense, if you will. This is not something that one day, don't worry, life is miserable for you now, but one day it's going to be blessed. 
one day you're going to have that peace and contentedness in your heart, but it's something that we can enjoy right now and we can possess right now. And I think that is significant. Another helpful way I think you can, can consider these Beatitudes is to think of them this way. These are the attitudes that you should be having. The Beatitudes are the attitudes that you should be having. Now, I do not agree with the idea. And I don't want anyone to leave here thinking that this is what I'm saying. I don't agree with the idea that you can muster up these attitudes in your heart. So that you leave here and you say, you know what? I'm going to be more poor in spirit. I'm going to be more pure in heart. I'm going to be more meek and things like that. I do not believe that you can muster these attitudes up on your own. Rather, what I'm going to suggest to you are these are attitudes that God will begin to form in you as you allow Him to and as you let Him. Now, I do think that they can be targets for us. They can be things that we aim for. We can look at our lives and we can say, I'm not very meek. I'm not very poor in spirit or humble. I don't hunger and thirst after righteousness. We can look at that and we could say, you know what? Something's off track here. And so in that sense, it's, if you will, it's like a thermometer. It's an indicator of something that is already going on. And then as you look at your life and you see that the, the temperature has risen too high or whatever, then you can go and you can bring that back to the Lord. And you can say, Lord, you need to do a work within me. Lord, I, I don't have the attitude that you would desire for me to have. It's an indicator that perhaps as a citizen of heaven, you've gotten a bit off track. So if you notice that there's no joy present in your life, or that it is continually tied to the ups and downs of life, well, that's an indicator that perhaps you've stopped pursuing the blessed life as Jesus defines it, and begun defining or uh, pursuing the happy life as the world around you d- defines it. Well, let's go in and start defining or dissecting these attitudes that you should be having. Jesus begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus begins in the one place that any follower of His has to begin as well. He begins by declaring this, that a citizen of the kingdom of heaven must be poor in spirit. Now to be poor in spirit is not to see oneself as without value or as insignificant, but rather it's to consider yourself spiritually bankrupt. Uh, Poor in spirit is the opposite of spiritual pride. To be poor in spirit is to confess that you're sinful. Let me put it another way. It's that you're full of sin. It's to acknowledge that in yourself, truly, as it says in the Scripture, no good thing does dwell. And that you are utterly without moral virtue adequate to commend you to God. It's not, you know, like, I'm not so bad. That's not being completely poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is the opposite of spiritual pride. We're not talking about self-hatred. We're not talking about self-loathing. But what we're referring to here, Jesus is referring to, is a response to the Holy Spirit's leading that because of your sin, you fall woefully short of God's demand for holy perfection. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Ever dependent and in need of God's grace and His mercy in your life. That's the place that every follower of Christ must begin and must remain in their walk with Him. Now, I'm glad that it begins here, to be honest with you. Because if it began something with, like for instance, the follower of Christ must be pure in heart, well, that's, that stinks. 
Because I'll tell you, when I came to Jesus Christ, I wasn't pure in heart at all. My heart was going in all sorts of different directions and wanting other things. But if you just tell me, no, you just need to come in brokenness. I can come in brokenness. I can come as a man or you can come perhaps as a woman and you can say, God, I fall short. Will you accept me? It's not by accident that Jesus begins here. Because what this does is, if this attitude is born in your heart and nurtured in your heart, all the other commands following it are now put into proper perspective. You can't mourn over your sin until you're first poor in spirit. You can't be meek toward others until you first have a humble view of yourselves. And you will never show mercy to another until you first realize just how much mercy God has shown to you. So again, Jesus begins where every one of us needs to begin by allowing God to break us and cause us to become poor in spirit. Now look, he continues in verse 4, and from there he says, And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And as a person is broken of their spiritual pride, Christ begins to enter into their lives and an intimacy of relationship begins to develop. And that leads to the second of the Beatitudes, blessed are those that mourn. Now Jesus purposefully uses a Greek word here which is the strongest form of mourning that was available in the Greek language. It was the word that was reserved for the passionate lament for someone who has died, particularly someone that has died suddenly and unexpectedly. So, you know, if you have a 90-year-old mother or something who's been sick for quite a while and she passes, you're mourning, but the shock of everything isn't there as if, you know, there was a car accident that took your 20-year-old or something like that. And that's the word that is used here. Blessed are those that passionately lament. And the context is mourning over your sin. It's a sorrow that one experiences because of the fellowship that they enjoy with Christ. And what grieves Him begins to grieve you as well. And there begins to develop in a person a sense, not just that things that they are doing are wrong, but that they are especially grievous. That's what we're talking about when Jesus says, blessed are those that mourn. In fact, the one that mourns over their sin, they begin to mourn not just over those things that they do, but they begin to even mourn over those things that they don't do. There's a new sense that is born within this person of just how far they are from the holiness of Christ. And an even greater desperation and brokenness as in being poor in spirit, is now formed in this man and this woman. But, but this is significant, I think, to point out. This is not a brokenness that is without hope. You see, because you could have a brokenness where you go away and you feel like a louse and that there's no hope for you, but that's not the brokenness that Jesus does within you. Jesus begins to do a breaking work within you, and at the same time as you're broken and you're fully aware of your sin, there's a sense of, his arms are open wide for me, and he's saying, come on over and sit next to me. You, you see where I'm going with that? And it, it doesn't make any sense, quite frankly. How can a person be happy while mourning? How can a person feel close to God when all of their sin is magnified more than ever in their lives? It, it doesn't necessarily make any sense, but yet it's what God does as God begins to reveal more of Himself in our lives. And it's important to note also this, that this isn't just limited over a brokenness for your own sin. 
but it includes a brokenness over all of those things that grieve the Lord. The sin of the world that is around you and the people that you care for and the people that don't even know that they're lost in their sin and you begin to realize that. The person that is mourning in this way begins to develop a heart that breaks for those that are lost. They begin to mourn passionately for the consequences that sin is bringing and will bring into a person's life here on the earth and into their eternity. And again, as I said, the things that grieve the Lord begin to grieve you as well. So let me ask you, do the things that grieve the Lord grieve you? Do the things that grieve the Lord grieve you? Take a sip of water while you think about that. Does it grieve you? Passionately lament over the fact that people are dying and going to hell. Does it break your heart that every day people pass through this life and enter into an eternity outside of a relationship with Jesus? Does the fact that nearly 60 million babies have been killed in this nation legally since the early 1970s, does that grieve you? Are you grieved by the fact that 40% of all babies born in our society today are born to couples out of wedlock? Does that grieve you? Because that's sin. Does the fact that over half of all marriages in America end in divorce, something that God says specifically in the Word of God that He hates, does that grieve you? Do the things that grieve the Lord grieve you? Is your heart grieved over the epidemic of forced prostitution in our nation? Of sexual trafficking where the average age of an individual brought into that is 13 years old? Forced sexual trafficking. Does that grieve you? Does sin and the consequences of sin break your heart? Because it's supposed to. And if it doesn't, then something is askew because a kingdom citizen will have their heart broken by these things. And I'll confess with you, my heart isn't broken enough by these things. And that reveals to me, and it reveals probably to you as well, you know what, I've been chasing after the wrong things. I've been investing my life as a citizen of the wrong country, so to speak. As a disciple of Christ, these things are to naturally grieve our hearts and to cause our, us mourning. But take notice what it says at the end of verse 4 that along with the promise of the blessedness of mourning, does that make any sense? No. But along with that promise comes the promise of being comforted. The book of Revelation, it says this. It says that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, Revelation 12 says. The psalmist says this, that we mourn now for a season, but joy will indeed come in the morning. And so along with the promise of um, the blessedness of mourning comes the promise of as it says there in the passage of being comforted. Now let's keep moving. The next attitude that we need to be having is found in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now there's a lot of confusion over this beatitude and the meaning of the word meekness. The casual listener will interpret this word meekness as weakness. Probably because they rhyme uh, for the most reason. But meekness doesn't refer to weakness, but it refers to a strength that is under control. The picture that is often given or suggested is that of a mighty stallion. Great strength and yet brought under the control and submitted to the rider. 
And a person that is weak, they can get angry, but even in that anger, they can restrain their wrath in obedience to God. One who is meek can suffer wrong, but they can remain free from bitterness and revenge. One who is meek is willing to lay aside their rights and their privileges and submit themselves to God and His will. And to be meek, there is a necessary humility that is required for meekness. Because the strength is there and the ability is there to kind of correct this problem that is coming against this person or this situation. But those traits, that strength, and those abilities are brought into submission to the person's will and ultimately to God's will. Now we talked about humility earlier when we considered being poor in spirit. And I like what one person said about this. It's one thing for me to admit my own spiritual bankruptcy, but what if somebody else admits it for you? How do you respond to that? Do you respond to that? Can you respond to that in meekness? And the person that is meek finds himself meek before God in that he or she is submitting to God and His will and conforming their life to His Word. But they also find themselves meek before men and women in that though they are strong, they interact with others in humility and gentleness and patience and long-suffering. And Jesus, notice, He promises that the meek will inherit the earth. Now the message of the world is you have to look out for number one because no one else is going to do so, right? The message of the world is if you want something in your life, you just have to go out and take it. I'm sure you've heard those messages. If you watch the news and the presidential campaigns and this guy, you know, who always does that with the hair, he always talks about you got to be strong. you got to be number one. I, I, I don't, I don't, not, it's not a political thing here, but I can't help compare... Donald Trump and Ben Carson, if you've watched these two. If you need a definition of meekness, you don't have to vote for the guy, but if you need a definition of meekness, look at Ben Carson in comparison especially uh, to the other candidate that is there. And You hear these messages in the world of business, in the world of politics. You hear it in interpersonal relationships. The message of the world implies if you don't, somebody else will. But notice what Jesus says here. He makes this very clear that if you don't, He will. You see that? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You don't have to go out and get it. You don't have to scheme to get it. You don't have to be cutthroat to get it. Just present yourself before Him. A citizen of the kingdom of God entrust themselves to God and His will knowing that He can be trusted, that God can be trusted, and confident that God is going to provide. So, blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Let's continue. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, two words are used here for hungering and thirsting, and they go beyond the idea of being a little hungry or a little thirsty. So right now, I am a little hungry and I am a little thirsty, but I'm not starving to death. And the words that Jesus is using here to describe this longing for righteousness, He's using words that describe a profound hunger and a profound thirst that can't be satisfied with a little snack or some sips of water or something like that. And so when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's saying, blessed are those that are starving for, that are longing for with all that is in them, God and the things of God. In their life and in the world that is around them. And I think we, even as believers... We hunger and thirst for all sorts of other things. We hunger and thirst for power. 
We hunger and thirst for wealth, for comfort, for position. Ultimately, I believe we're longing for happiness. And we believe that all of those things are going to bring it. If I can just get that power, if I can just have that wealth, if I can just have that home, if I can just have that position, then I will be happy. Only to find that after a lifetime of pursuing those things, that happiness is not found in those things. And Jesus makes it clear that the blessed one, the happy one, is the one whose heart is starving for righteousness. And again, a person that hungers for righteousness, they desire with all that is in them to be right with God. And when I say that, I'm not referring to positionally. That is taken care of in salvation. Positionally, we are declared righteous by Christ as a result of the work of Christ. What I'm talking about is practically. We want to be practically right with God. The person desires that nothing would become between them and Christ. If they discover sin in their lives, they immediately put it away because sin will hinder them from that close relationship that they are desperate for. If they see sin in the world around them, they take steps to minimize its effect or more importantly, replace it in this world by promoting righteousness. A person that hungers and thirsts for righteousness longs to have a righteous nature. There's a pang within them to be sanctified and to be holy. And this person, Jesus says, will be filled. Or the word He uses, they will be satisfied. But again, the interesting thing to note about that is the hunger will be satisfied, but it won't go away. You see what I mean? The hunger will keep wanting more. I want more of Jesus. I want more of Jesus. I want more of Jesus. We're satisfied, yet we keep longing for even more of Him in our lives. Verse 7, let's continue. It says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And again, the context of things is speaking to people that have already received mercy. Believers. These are people that by God's mercy have been forgiven of their sins. By God's mercy have had their spirit broken. By God's mercy have begun to find themselves hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And by God's mercy they have begun to show mercy to others. Not because they have to. Man, I'm a Christian. I've got to show mercy to people. But because God has begun internally to compel them to. Self-righteousness is gone. Any sort of judgmental, critical spirit has departed. They find in themselves no place for arrogance or spiritual pride. God has caused them to become a merciful person. And He promises them that they will indeed receive mercy themselves. We have a few more. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, as I said earlier, I am sure glad it doesn't begin with that, with that one. I'm so glad it doesn't begin with being pure in heart because every one of us, we know when we begin our relationship with Christ, our hearts are anything but pure. And even as we walk with Christ for some time, the impurity of our hearts are continually and regularly exposed. But here's the good news for each one of us here. As we begin walking according to the manifesto of the Christian life, God begins to change us from the inside out. Have you begun to discover that in your life? Anybody please? Yes, you have. God begins to change you from the inside out. You didn't have to read some book somewhere other than maybe the Scripture. 
You didn't have to have someone convince you. Just all of a sudden, God began to change things in you. And He took that impure, unpure heart and He began to make it pure. God begins to change us. Sin, of course, is still present. We continue to do things, as Paul says, that we don't want to do. But something begins to change in us. Our hearts begin to long for purity. Not the image of purity, like the Pharisees, but true inner purity. We want to be right with God. And the intimacy of our relationship with Christ, it begins to drive us toward purity. So now, it's no longer about, well, I do the right thing because I don't want to get caught doing the wrong thing. It's not about that at all anymore. Now we begin to pursue the right thing because we want to be right with God. You see the difference? And so we're so desperate for Him that we desire Him with all of our heart. Our heart begins to want what God wants. It becomes undivided. That's the idea of purity. It's utterly sincere in its devotion and its commitment to Him. Not wanting to do anything that would hinder that. And notice the promise. For the one that is pure in heart, it says, they shall see God in verse 8. I'm reminded of the verse in Jeremiah. It says, you'll seek Me and you'll find Me when you seek Me with all of your heart. That is the idea of an undivided heart. And I'll be found by you that declares the Lord. The pure of heart will see the Lord. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now this is not a general blessing on all of those that live in peace, but rather it is a blessing on those that make for peace. And ultimately, a peacemaker speaks of one that brings the ministry of reconciliation between God and man through Jesus Christ on the cross. That's ultimately what a peacemaker will do. They'll introduce people to the forgiveness of sin that is found in Jesus Christ. Additionally, though, being a peacemaker is speaking of those that overcome evil with good, as it says in the book of Romans. It speaks of those that take up the cause of the exploited or the wrong, and they actively intervene on their behalf. You know, how much easier is it for us to say, well, that's not my problem? It's not my problem, so I'm not going to get involved in that particular instance there. But the one that is a peacemaker, in the purity of their heart, they get involved and they p- take positive action toward creating peace. This is one of the reasons why this last year we have begun supporting International Justice Mission here at Calvary Chapel. Because it is an organization doing better than we can do as individuals that, is, that are peacemakers around the world. Taking up the cause of injustice for those that can't take it up for themselves. And they do so in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we proudly support them as a church. A peacemaker speaks of those that don't go looking for drama. Do you go looking for drama? Are you not satisfied unless there's tension going on? Well, may I suggest to you, stop it. Stop it. You don't need the drama in your life. You don't need to go looking for it. You don't need to create it. You don't need to get involved in other people's drama. Just stay out of it. A disciple of Christ is called to be a peacemaker. And thus notice what it says. And those who do so are called sons of God. They're a disciple of Christ. So here, we've looked at the first, whatever, eight of them that are listed there, seven of them that are listed there. We'll pick up the next time we're together. But these are the attitudes, humility, mourning over your sin, meekness, hungering for righteousness, being merciful. These are the attitudes that every disciple of Christ should be having. 
And according to Jesus, this is the means by which a person will live the blessed life. And so we ask ourselves today, and I think this is a good thing to regularly come back to, but we ask ourselves today, are you seeing these traits being built up in your life? And remember, these aren't traits that you drum up in your life, but they're indicators of God's work in your life. So, are you noticing in your life a lack of humility? Well, bring that to the Lord. And say, Lord, I am a disciple of Yours. I know I am. I've come to the cross. I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I've been washed of my sin, and You've given me the down payment of Your Holy Spirit. And I know I'm a disciple of Yours, yet I notice in my life there's a lack of humility. Something is askew, Lord. And you bring that to the Lord and you ask Him to search it out and to expose those areas. And you ask Him, what's keeping me, Lord, from that being formed within me? Do you notice a harsh, critical, judgmental spirit in your heart and in your life and in your manner of living? Well, give that to the Lord because the disciple of Christ is merciful. And if those two don't match up, then something's askew. And ask God to search that out. You know, and again, as I said earlier, I would hate to see anyone leave here today thinking, I am going to try harder to be a better Christian. I've read the manifesto, and now I'm going to live it out. Because that is a mistake. And that's not what I'm trying to convey at all. The reality is the harder you try, the more prevalent your failure will be. I've shared a sermon from Romans 7, or I think it was, and it's entitled, God Wants You to Fail. And I believe that with all my heart. It sounds ridiculous, I know. But I believe it with all of my heart because I believe God wants us to come to the end of our own efforts. You did nothing to get saved, right? Would you agree that? Jesus did the work. You accepted His free gift. You have done nothing to be saved. You can do nothing to sanctify yourself. You just have to present yourself to Him. And when He leads and He directs, you respond in obedience. But so often we try, we try, we try, we try, and then we're miserable. And we're either a grumpy Christian, mad at everybody else because they're not trying and failing like you are, or we give it up altogether. And that's not what God wants for you. He invites you into relationship with Him. Give these things over to the Lord. Petition Him to do a changing work within you. I, I agree, you do have a part to play in the process. When He reveals, you respond. But it has to be His work and not your own work. And so this morning, my prayer for us is that we would allow these Beatitudes this morning and then as we go from here this coming week and beyond to serve, if you will, as a mirror onto our hearts. That they would expose what's going on in there and they would reveal if there's anything that is askew. So that in obedience then, we can bring those things to the Lord and ask Him to change us. Would you agree with that? Let's pray. Father, we see these things, and, and Lord, uh, frankly, in many of the cases, Lord, we don't measure up. Certainly not consistently. And yet, Lord, our desire is to do so. Lord, we want to be transformed into the image of Your Son. Lord, we want to grieve over those things that grieve Your heart, Lord. We want to be people that because of the mercy we've enjoyed, Lord, we are quick to show mercy to other people. But we want to have hearts, Lord, that hunger and thirst after You and are undivided in that uh, endeavor.
And Lord, we want to be people, Lord, that in our humility, all of our spiritual pride has been broken down. Lord, and we come to You completely empty-handed. Lord, just simply requesting, Lord, if You would have me, I'll be Yours. So Father, thank You for Your great love for us. Thank You for the way in which You continually, Lord, draw us to Yourself and You woo us to Yourself. Use Your Word, Lord, this morning and this coming week. Lord, as that mirror. Lord, just to reveal that perhaps 